Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm finally getting around to podcasting a conversation that several of us had a few weeks ago in a live salon. Our guest was Jimmy Fritz, who regaled us with some stories about his 50-plus years of buying, selling, and experimenting with psychedelic drugs while also traveling the world. Jimmy is based in Vancouver, British Columbia, home of the famous BC Bud, by the way. I first learned about his exploits from a recently published book that he wrote, and it's titled Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer. Now, how could I resist reading a book with a title like that? After all, on the homepage at psychedelicsalon.com is an interview with me that's titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. (laughs) Well, Jimmy has also been a rave promoter, and some of his insights about scripting the music for an all-night rave I found very fascinating. And back in 1999, Jimmy also wrote a book titled Rave Culture, an Insider's Overview. I'm only about a quarter of the way through that right now, but it's also a very fascinating read. So now let's join Jimmy Fritz and some of our fellow saloners for an evening of interesting conversation. And there we are. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. I got you loud and clear. Good to see you. Loud and clear? Good, good. Good, good. Excellent. Nice to meet you. Same here that, uh, you know, even though our... our, uh, Physical paths have uh, been kind of different. Uh, our intellectual insides have been very much right. the same. A lot of our, our feelings and reactions have been uh, similar. So. Yeah, yeah. That uh, we'll wait a little bit here and get a few more people in before we actually. Okay. Sure. What I'm going to do is uh, I'll edit out any you know long pauses or stuff like that, and then yeah. uh, by by next Monday, I'll I'll produce this as a podcast and put links to your book and stuff like that, or to both books actually. So uh, we'll we'll get all that done uh, about a week from now. I I run a little slow on some of these things. I've I've lost some of my uh, energy. right right. Can you send me a copy of the podcast when it's done? Oh yeah, for sure. And I'll send you links to that and to the program notes and to the whole thing. So uh, right. Uh, ho- hopefully, it'll it'll get you some. Uh, uh, a little more exposure that uh, yeah, sure. so, some of our <clears throat> some of the regular suspects are here, and <laughs> we we've been we've been doing this actually since 2018, and then uh, when the pandemic began, we started doing uh, two a week. Where uh, on Thursdays I do it in the morning out here in the West Coast, which is uh, 7:30 at night uh, London time. And we bring in people from Russia and Morocco and England and stuff like that. So, uh, oh. uh, you know, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun. And, and uh, in fact, uh, Thursday when when our guys from England come in, we'll be sure to be talking about you that that you finally you finally made it back there after all those years, huh? Uh huh. <laughs> oh, back I, to England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't been back in twenty five years and never thought I would go back until you know I made contact through Facebook. Right. You never say never, right? Yeah, that's so, right. But, you know, uh, we, we've got a, a several people here, uh, most of whom are readers. Some of us have uh, been around to, as friends for a long time. 
even though most of us have really never met in person, <laughs> except for a few of us. Right. But the, the pandemic's worked out uh, interestingly for us because some of us are kind of isolated and uh, gives us a chance to get together. And then, then I podcast these and uh, we get a little wider audience and uh, that helps too. So yeah. uh, let, let's, let's start out. You're, you're in Vancouver right now, right? Yeah, that's right. And you, you've been there for a long time. Yeah, I've been here for about 30 years now. <laughs> and it wasn't easy getting there. I, you know, I've read your book, so uh, I, I know the yeah. stories. And let, let me say this, I, and I know that you know, it, it might be awkward for you, but I've got to say this. this is re- you is really a good writer. It's a well-written book. Thank you. Uh, you know, the first one-third of it is essentially a travelogue. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, the, the only part about drugs is, you know, how to smuggle and stuff back in the 70s, which you know, is kind of outdated now. But uh, the book is is very well written, and you know I get a laugh every few pages because you have that that irony and sarcasm of Hunter S. Thompson, and you know it <laughs> slips in there, you know. So uh, I I don't know if you're a fan of his. That I am, so that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I am, but um, I'm not sure that my style's quite like his. He's a bit. No, no, it's not. It's not your style. It's just a comment. Uh, yeah, it's a comment yeah. here or there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe the irreverent, the irreverent attitude, perhaps. <laughs> that's that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the the non-reverent attitude. Now, now, uh, we'll, we'll get to you know your book is Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, but uh, I'm I'm about to to get your first book now, your earlier book now, and what was the title of that, please? Rave Culture. And and uh, while while everybody here knows that I'm interviewing somebody that wrote a, a book about being an ethical drug dealer for 50 years, uh, right. they may be surprised that you've also been a, a big rave promoter. So let's kind of back into the rave promotion part first, and then yeah. we'll, we'll get back into the book. So how how did you get into? I assume producing raves in Vancouver area primarily. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I just got into it, you know, through a friend's uh, son actually. He was, uh, this was a kid that I used to babysit when he was one year old. I was, his, I was his babysitter where he grew up and 20 years later, he showed up because his father was, had visited me off and on in Vancouver and uh, his son Wayne had showed up and said, hey, there's this new thing called rave and, uh, you know, this new drug called MDMA and you should try it. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was 40 at the time. And um, sounded like it sounded like a good idea, so I said, "Okay, I'll check it out." So he got me a nice big hit of good clean MDMA, and we went to this rave, and uh, really did change my life. It was an incredibly eye-opening experience. Well, I I can totally relate to that because I was forty-two years old. Uh, I had never even smoked pot at that time. Right. I'm that straight and narrow lawyer in Texas, you know. And a friend of mine uh, took me to the Start Club in Dallas. And you, you'd mentioned that uh, the dance club in Dallas with uh, right. MDMA on the bars. And yep. uh, that was actually before Raves. That was in uh, 1984. And right. uh, it changed my whole life, too. So I can really relate to how one evening walking in like that and dropping a little ecstasy is uh, yeah. a life-changing experience. Over the, over the course of about five years, I produced probably 30 or 40 events. And um, during the course of those events, I saw literally hundreds of people's lives change. People that were connecting with themselves and connecting with other people on a 
on a meaningful level, sometimes for the first time ever. So I was amazed at the effect that it was having on people's lives, the positive effects. But that was my interest in it. And, and, and tell us a little bit how you, how you controlled the, uh, the quality of the crowd so that, uh, you know, that, that you didn't get regularly busted like uh, most ravers do. Yeah, well, we, um, we, we wanted to have a really tight crowd. So the, 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 it was hand-picked. It was basically members only. So we had a membership card, and everybody had the membership card with their name on it, and it said that they were certified 100% cool and groovy. So they were certified by me, and if they were 100% cool and groovy, and we know who those people are, <laughs> and they were in. And because of that, we never had any problems with anybody. We never had any problems with security, never had any problems with, uh, you know, uh, issues or people going off the tracks because everybody was there for the same reason. Everybody was responsible adults and everybody knew. And I had everybody on one email list, a group email list with 300 people. So I would, you know, coach them through the emails, tell them what we were doing and why we were doing it and what the point was. And they all got on board with that program. And we had some really transcendental group mind experiences. And, and did you did you uh, do it like the, a lot of the ravers were doing back in the 90s where you didn't announce the location until the last few minutes or whenever you could? Yeah. I used to announce it the day the day before uh, be, be, because we were on a, you know, because we were on a closed loop, so to speak because we had this email list. I didn't have to be quite as careful. We didn't have to go to pick up points or anything like that or evasive actions because everybody knew what to do. And I'd tell people where to park and how to come in. And we'd have a way of getting in and out so that people didn't, were coming in in twos and threes and discreetly so we could disguise the locations. And it worked really well. It worked fantastic. That's really, really great. And, and one of the other things uh, I, I – uh, you, you, First of all, even uh, I haven't read your first book, but in, in your confessions book, uh, there's a great deal of information about raves, organizing raves, and in particular, yeah. the music, organizing the music for an, for an evening. Why, yeah. why don't you talk to us about how that worked and how you, how you had some rogue DJs that you had to deal with? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the music is really critical. And a lot of people kind of underestimate that. They think they can just have a party and invite a bunch of DJs and have a, a wonderful rave. It doesn't really work like that. You've got to plan that musical journey because it's, it's, it's a, it creates a journey, a motif in your mind, and it creates that psychological journey that you go on. And everybody clicks into that same, that same journey. So to do that, you have to have consistent music. You can't suddenly be playing progressive house and then switch it up to drum and bass because you just lose everybody completely at that point. And you've got to have, you've got to edit out all the dead, dead stuff and just keep the build going. Keep this long, slow build all the way through the night. So I used to coach the DJs quite carefully and they'd start off on certain beats per minute, you know, start off with some, uh, you know, tribal house and then we work into some deeper house and then some harder house and then progressive house and then trance and then maybe some side trance at the end. So it was a complete progression from start to finish. That was the idea is to create this eight hour musical journey. You just got on and, and you couldn't get off. But you know, I should I should point out that that you're you're not an amateur when it comes to music. You you made a, a significant part of your living uh, playing music, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, my whole life really. I started playing guitar when I was uh, sixteen, 
and uh, used it as a form of income while I traveled around Europe for many, many years. And it was my uh, main source of income. I'd travel around the Mediterranean to all the bars and cafes and street and play in the street, basically. I was a street, street musician for 10 years. And when I came to North America, I was playing in bars and cafes and stuff, and I did some concerts, uh, made five albums. And, uh, yes, yeah, so music has always been a big part of my life. And that's why when I first heard electronic dance music for the first time when I was 40, I'd never heard anything like it. And I was really intrigued as to how it was made and where it came from and started looking into it and getting very interested in it. And that was took me into the whole history of uh, rave culture. And that's what inspired my uh, first book, Rave Culture, an Insider's Overview. So you know, that, uh, that, that you're, you're uh, playing on the street corners and on sidewalks uh, throughout Europe and North America is, you know, I've, I've been so many places and, you know, put money in the, in the, the boxes and all. I've always wondered about the musicians, you know, and, uh, you know, and so, so I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that you actually could make a living doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but some of the adventures that that led to were, were awesome. For example, uh, the adventure where, uh, you were going through that, uh, checkpoint where, uh, just uh, two weeks earlier, the Marrakesh Express had been, uh, where they've been all killed. So can you yeah. tell us about that one? How, how did you get to that point? And, and what, were, how, what were you doing to wind up there? Well, that was the magic bus, actually. The, well, I was on the Marrakesh Express, too, in Morocco one time, and that was just the bus that took people from the north to the south down to Marrakesh. So I was on the Marrakesh Express, and we did all sing the song on the bus. And, uh, but the, what you think what you're talking about is the magic bus, which was a service mm -hmm. that took people from Istanbul to uh, Pakistan and India. We went through Turkey and Iran and uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and into India. That was the route. And it would go backwards and forwards, and um, for about 100 bucks, you could, uh, you could get all the way. But we got to the point where we um, – I didn't take the magic bus, but we were on a double-decker bus that we picked up in uh, Istanbul, and we went through the same route. But we were stopped just before the Iranian border – and uh, we were told that it was too dangerous to pass. And we heard that then that the magic bus had, you know, made its last trip. And it was stopped by the Kurdish rebels. And uh, there were people were dragged out and shot on the side of the road. And so that was the end of the magic bus. That was the last voyage. So we waited a few days and we got a police escort. And we finally went through that area and uh, came out to the other side and then went straight to Pakistan. Let me let me ask you, Jimmy, that uh, for you know, there's a lot of young people that will hear this, and uh, uh, you know, even with the pandemic, uh, kids are still starting to, to move around the world, and there's going to be a lot more of that. Uh, what was going through your minds right then, because you heard about this this massacre, and and but you didn't turn around, you you went ahead. Uh, what was what was your thinking? Oh, there was there was a lot of a lot of those points in that in those trips where. You'd be in obvious danger, you know, like and now if I was in those situations, I probably would, you know, think a lot more carefully and a lot more, you know, sane and soberly and probably, you know, do something else instead. <laughs> At the time, I think I was 19 years old when I did that. So I really didn't have, you know, any, any awareness of, of being afraid of these things. I thought it was just a big adventure. So ah, I would be fine, you know, I just didn't, I don't ever remember being, um, being worried about it. 
And, was, and what was greeting? What was there to greet you in Tehran when you finally got through? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So then we get to a, we get to Tehran, and there's they've uh, three weeks into the hostage crisis. So we had three people, uh, you know, rush, screaming at us uh, in the double decker bus because we stuck out like a sore thumb. You could see us for miles. We drove past the American embassy to have a look. We went, oh, they got the hostages. Let's go take a look. So we <laughs> went over there. We had a crowd of about a hundred people around the bus, and they were throwing rocks. They smashed the front window, the side window, and um, they wanted to uh, fight the fight the men and fuck the women. They wanted to buy our jeans. They wanted to, uh, you know, wreak havoc. And they put a uh, a comic book in our gas tank. And the comic book uh, finally went through the fuel system and decapitated the bus. It, it was completely, uh, you know, kaput. And we had to get that fixed. So then when it's a situation with all these militant Islamists and and, um, and some loyalists or whatever, and they were all, uh, they all were kind of very threatening. And again, it was, you know, right now, it would, you know, today it would have been a really frightening experience. At the time, I don't remember being afraid at all. We're just too young and stupid to be afraid. So there's there's the advice is is go while you're young. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that's exactly. true. I, did, I did similar things. Yeah, and and you know, there's there's a couple of people here there I know dying to ask the question. Do you know what the comic book was that they stuffed in your tank? You know, I don't. We uh, pulled it out and we, we were trying to. It was all in bits, so we didn't actually figure out what what the comic book was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, what what other adventures during that period of your life really stand out as some of the uh, the things that really kind of shaped you for the future, as far as your your uh, you know where you you've gone, how you've resisted uh, regular authorities, and and made a wonderful life for yourself. Well, I was more or less on the road for about you know ten or fifteen years, because it's constantly moving. And I would just go, you know, wherever wherever the wind took me. So I'd meet somebody and they'd say, oh, we're going to this place and this place is cool, let's go there. And I'd just go and survive on the way and survive however I could when I got there. But never really planned anything out. It was just kind of, um, you know, a rolling stone. And you left home when you were quite young, right? Fifteen, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh... So from 15 to 25, you were you were really the Rolling Stone. Pretty much, yeah. Mostly around Europe and North Africa and uh, Asia. And then later on, you know, Central America and North America. Now, now here's something that, that I think everybody's going to be very pleasantly surprised about. Uh, you've been married for a long time. Tell us about how you met your wife. Yeah, we met her in Vancouver. I hitchhiked, in, hitchhiked into town with, uh, you know, $20 and a broken camera and a subway token. And uh, I, got, uh, I got recognized in the street. I went to an address which I thought I had, and there was nobody there. So that fell through. So I said, okay, I'll go sleep in the park. I'll go sleep in Stanley Park, in a big park in the middle of the city. So I was walking down the road, and I met some people that were playing Frisbee. And they had recognized me from playing in the street in Toronto. So they said, hey, we remember you, you know, playing at Young and Bloor in Toronto. And uh, so they invited me in and uh, gave me a place to stay in the basement. And I stayed there for a few days and I'd go out on the porch. And on the opposite porch on the other side of the road was uh, 
Veronica, my future wife. So she just showed up and we had a little wave and she waved back and she came over for coffee and then she started to come over and with nectarines. And then uh, she'd come and see me play at the zoo. I was, I was busking at the zoo. And she'd come by and give me snacks and stuff. And we struck up a friendship. And then we did LSD together one night and walked around Stanley Park all night. And in the morning, we came back. And instead of going to cross the road, I went into her place and never left. That was 42 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful story. But as you're, you're telling it, the one thing that just had to jump into my Irish mind is that uh, didn't you ever learn about women giving you fruit, the danger in that? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It's a classic. It was a nectarine, no, not an apple. Oh, okay, okay. But, uh, I figured it might be safe. But now, my, you, you also, didn't you spend uh, a little time, uh, not, not while you're young, but uh, in your, your later years, in your more recent years, living in Amsterdam? Yeah, I went to Amsterdam a few times because it was kind of the gateway to Europe and you leave England, kind of hitchhike across and go over to uh, uh, Calais usually in France and then you hitchhike to Amsterdam. And that's usually the starting point. So I'd been there three or four times, but uh, we, did, we did live there for a few months, like four, I think four, somewhere between like five months maybe, one time. And we, we stayed there and had an apartment and uh, Veronica worked uh, for a, a psychiatrist. And um, yeah, it's a great town. I love Amsterdam. It was, it was one of my favorite European towns. Veronica is also an artist, correct? That's right. Very talented one. Yeah. Yeah. She's... How, how, is, how has Amsterdam changed over the years? Well, um, it's gotten bigger, you know. It used to be a bit more smaller town feeling, but uh, so it's gotten to be a bigger city. But as far as the ethos goes there and the people, it's, it's pretty similar. You know, I was there, I guess, the last time just, to, you know, maybe five years ago. And it was, uh, you know, it's not that much difference, actually. The people are the same. They have very libertarian attitudes, very progressive society. So that hasn't changed, really. Although I've heard recently that they're talking about tightening up on the coffee shops again. They do this every few years. They say, we're going to shut the coffee shops and then they try it and it doesn't work and people keep doing it. And then they, now they're saying that they're going to ban tourists from going to the coffee shops. So, uh, you know, they go through that every, you know, every five, yeah. six years or something like that. They have cut down the number of them. And I, I see recently they're now talking about moving the red light district out of the area it's in, too. Yeah. And they've been talking about that for 20 years, too. <laughs> and it didn't happen yet. <laughs> you know, you know, one of the, the greatest compliments I ever had in my life, I was in, in Amsterdam. I think it was for a cannabis cup. And, and I was walking on the street and an American tourist came up. And started talking to me as if I was a, a native uh, Dutch person, and started uh -huh. talking to me in broken English, asking if I could give directions. They they took me for a native. I thought, wow, you know, I've really got it made now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're super friendly. I mean, the, the 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 locals there are still, you know, they're not jaded yet with all the tourism and stuff and all the people you know passing through. They still they're still super friendly and very centered and very sort of sane and rational. Like it's been an international cosmopolitan city for 
you know, hundreds of years too. Yeah, so yeah. They, that's that's right. in their, their gene, genes. Yeah. Yeah, let, so let me, before I ask any more questions and dominate this whole conversation, let me open it up and see if uh, anybody else here wants to, uh, has a, a question, something they'd like to ask. Anybody here? Don't all speak up at once, no? Well, let me ask you one question. How did you successfully be a very successful drug dealer for over 50 years and not get arrested <laughs> at all? I think it's because I wasn't, you know, open. I wasn't a, 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 a drug dealer for everybody. I was only drug dealer for people that I only dealt uh, drugs to people that I knew and people that I trusted. So it was all very much a tight circle. I kept my circle very, very tight at all times. And it's mostly professionals, you know. I've got a lot of doctors and dentists and lawyers and, you know, the, the, the pillars of society kind of thing. So I'm not, you know, I'm not dealing to, to, to sketchy people or to anybody that uses drugs irresponsibly. So I have uh, high standards. You know, you've got to be a responsible drug user. You've got to know exactly what you're doing. You've got to be doing it for the right reasons. You've got to be a smart person doing smart drugs instead of a dumb person doing dumb drugs. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that, I, I did very – go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, I've only – and that's the other the point that I would make about being a dealer is that I've only ever dealt drugs which I thought were good for people, which I thought, you know, increased your perception and awareness rather than drugs that don't. There's a huge I, I, between psychedelics and a lot of other street drugs, and I've never dealt any – you know, addictive street drugs, only, only psychedelics, basically. Yeah, I, I, when I was reading your book, I was taken with the fact that uh, back in the 80s, when I was in Dallas and I was uh, selling MDMA, it was the same thing. I was only selling to people that I either knew or that I, I'd give them literature ahead of time and ask them to read it. And then I'd ask them some questions, what they were thinking. To get yeah, yeah. Out of it and all. yeah, I was like that. And, you know, I had a, a, a pretty good practice, and I sold to a few clubs that uh, were, uh, my dealer gave to me. But uh, everybody that I was dealing with, I felt very comfortable with, and I wanted to yeah. make sure that they, they did the same thing. Uh, and that's one way to stay very careful. You know, it's uh, uh, yeah. the shady people, like you say in your book, are the ones that are going to do shady things. and get Right, you right, right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, I always chose my customers very carefully. And I didn't just sell to anybody, you know, I had a lot of people, people would come up to me in clubs and want to buy something and I'd say, no, I don't, you know, I don't have anything. If I didn't know them, if I didn't feel really good about them, if they came through a trusted friend, I'd, I'd talk to them, but that's about it. So yeah, very, very. Go ahead. Somebody's elephant. I was, going to, I was going to say, I, I, I got to the point where I, I, I no, no longer would sell to anybody that I didn't do drugs with, you know, and so right. I, I really, really knew them. Like you in, in your, uh, when you had your, your rave uh, sessions going, uh, it really makes a difference if you have an audience or a crowd that is all in the same vibe, you know, they're not oh, yeah. for different reasons. And you said when you were giving out, sending out emails leading up to a rave, you were, you were setting the, the expectations for that particular party. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Everybody was really on the same page. They weren't, you know, they weren't coming to just get out of it and have a big crazy party. It was all very intentional. It was like, okay, what are we, you know, we're going to go on this inner journey. We're going to connect. We're going to have a group mind experience. And we're going to just go on the journey together and see where it takes us and get connected. And that was... That was the uh, intention, and so that's what happened, right? 
You know, there was a, a group out of Seattle in, in the late 90s called the Oracle Gatherings, and uh, I, I, I attended a few of those. And what they, they created a tarot deck of, I think, 20-some cards that yeah. were unique for them. And each gathering was one of the cards. And at the, the gathering, at the end of the gathering, the cards that were left, they would pick one, and that would be the, the intention for the next one, which would be, you know, three or four months away or something like that. Yeah. And they did the same thing. The whole theme, though, of the whole rave, then they had, you know, there, a lot of them were done outdoors, so it's sort of like burning, many Burning Man theme camps. Right, right. You know? Yeah, it's good to have a focus. It's good to have an intention. Even when doing psychedelics, if you're going to do LSD or mushrooms or whatever, it's good to it's good to have an intention and uh, and have a have a focus and and be aware of what you're doing, and not just. I mean, I know people that do like five hits of acid and go to a horror movie. I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Talk about the wrong setting. <laughs> you know, I, I have a friend in L.A. Uh, who goes by the name Cinnamon Twist, and he spent uh, a couple months uh, in England living with Fraser Clark, Clark uh, years ago when Fraser was around. Fraser was uh, really uh, instrumental in the early rave scene over there in, in the London area. And yeah. uh, uh, Cinnamon Twist came back over here in L.A., and he started a series of raves called The Learning Party. And uh, on a couple of them, myself and Mateo would go and uh, from like uh, 11 till 12, they would have this lecture. We'd talk about ayahuasca or microdosing or something like that. And then the music would start around midnight. And, and, uh, and it, was, it wasn't just us. They had all kinds of different people come talk about yoga and uh, right. things like that. But it was, it was actually a learning party. They did a little learning and then a party. And it was really an interesting uh, mix of people that would show up for that because they weren't just the candy ravers, you know, the people right, really right. to get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah, we were we were quite a you know a mature focused crowd, so it was quite a different scene than um, you know than the younger parties where everybody was you know like you say the candy ravers and they were all just uh, freaking out. We were um, we were a bit more focused than that. It was it was an incredible time. It was an amazing time. Yeah, it really I was. watched a lot of people's lives you know change for the better. So it was very satisfying. And then I got exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting. You're right. It's for the younger people. Get up at eight o'clock in the morning, and I didn't start doing this till I was forty. So I get up at eight o'clock in the morning, get the thing going, get the sound there, get the equipment there, make sure it was all set up, get the decorating crew on, set up the whole thing, and then I'd come back and eat, go back to the party, open the doors at uh, ten, and then I'd do. I'd be on the door until midnight or one o'clock. And then we shut the doors, and that was it. And then from that point on, I'd be, uh, you know, doing E and, uh, and dancing the night away. And then in the morning, the lights went up. We'd have to pack it up. We'd have to clean it up. We'd have to ship it out. Then we go to the after party, and then we do some acid at the after party and go all that day and then go to sleep the next night. And I There's did There's no that. way to turn off. There was no way to turn off. Every weekend for almost 10 years. <laughs> And I look back on it now, and I, you know, I don't know how I did it. I can't do that now. You know, for a th for a thirty year old man, you 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 look quite well. <laughs> All those I think Ch Charles has a question here. Go ahead, okay. Charles. Yeah, thanks, Lorenzo. 
So Jimmy Lorenzo asked uh, how you were able to be a drug dealer for 50 years without getting busted. And my question is, what was the impetus to write the book now? And what is the, imp- uh, the impact you're hoping it'll make uh, putting it out there at this time? Um, I don't know about impact. I mean, I just wrote it because I wanted to tell my story. Because I have a lot of friends. I mean, I have a, you know, a circle of a, you know, probably about 150 friends. And a lot of them don't know my whole story. They know bits of it. And, they, you know, I've told the odd story here and there. But I just felt the need because I'd, been, because I'd been doing this for so long and because I knew so much about it and I had something to say about it. And I used a lot of the stories as springboards to talk about, you know, to talk about philosophy or to talk about, you know, things that are important to me. So it was kind of a philosophical travelogue memoir. <clears throat> and I just wanted, to, <clears throat> just wanted to get a personal record, really. I don't expect it to be a bestseller or anything. And I'm, you know, <clears throat> like I'm not even, I'm not even advertising it in, in Canada, <clears throat> just to be on the safe side. <laughs> but I am promoting it a little bit in the States. And uh, and it's just nice to have so that I can I can turn people onto it that I want to that I, you know that I'm happy to do that with. But no, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any great hopes for it. Or um, I'm writing another book right now, and uh, I think that will be more. I think that will be more widely read, more less less specialized, anyways. So, so what's the topic of your new book? Um, it's a novel called The End of Everything. And it's about a character called Fritz, <laughs> coincidentally, who's, uh, who's in a sort of a, a nondescript mental asylum institution of some kind, not stated, understated, sort of like a Kafkaesque situation where you don't really know what's going on, but you get what's going on. And uh, he's uh, plotting to uh, kill himself. So basically, he's dissatisfied with, uh, you know, he can't get out of this place, so he's decided he's going to kill himself. So the whole thing is basically a suicide note and a rant on what's wrong and why, why, why it's you know, not worth living. <laughs> it's a really, really uplifting tale. <laughs> it's going to be hilarious. <laughs> Very timely and topical, that's for sure. I saw in the chat that Pat had a question. Yeah? Pat, I don't know if you want to unmute. Yeah, I was just curious um, if you had any unique or um, especially memorable stories of gifting uh, whatever kind of drug away, whether it was a crazy setting or uh, amount or a specific person. Um, do you have any stories like that? Well, in the early days of, of uh, partying, I used to sell. I used to sell e, and uh, you know make quite good money. But after I'd made money and it was a tight circle of friends and stuff, and I'd do private events for like, you know, 60 people or 70 people or whatever, and I'd generally give out free, free. So I'd get a silver platter, and I'd fill it with about 100 hits of E on one side, and then 100 little chunks of mushroom on the other side. Then I'd go around with this silver tray <laughs> and go around the party and offer it to people. And... Uh, <laughs> People used to love that. <laughs> so yeah, I do. I do enjoy giving, uh, and mostly these days I don't. I don't sell uh, any. I just give it away. So I do still buy it, but I don't sell it. I just. Uh, I go. I mean, if I go to events or people come to my house, and I like to just give it away. 
but people love that. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't want to give any of this away because if they want to learn the details, they should go buy your book. But yeah, you have some excellent example, excellent uh, tips on how to bring substance to Burning Man. And yeah. I'm sorry that we didn't cross paths there because you, you were you were a gifter uh, supremo. I tell you that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, that was my gift. Like a, you know, it's a gifting society, so I wanted to bring something to gift. And what better than Ian Acid? <laughs> <laughs> And I, if if people if if when Burning Man starts up again, people want to know a surefire way to get stuff there. They should buy your book, and they'll find they'll find some good stuff. You'll know how to do it. Well, our, our theme camp. This first time we went to Burning Man, we went with another theme camp uh, from Vancouver. The second time we took our own theme camp, which was basically my rave collective, which was called the Society for the Perpetuation of Hepatogenic Celebrations, or SPEC. So the events were called Spec Projects. So we took that we took that name, and that was the name of our camp in Burning Man. We called it uh, the Spec Camp, and we offered a, uh, a gin and tonic LSD chill out lounge. So we had a bar with gin and gin and tonics. We give people LSD, and then we have a little party at our camp every night, and then we'd set off to the playa after the. Uh, after the, uh, you know, happy hour or whatever. <laughs> also very popular. <laughs> what, what year was that first year you were there? You know, I think it was maybe 2005. It was 2005 or six because you talked about crude awakening, the big oil derrick that blew up. Yes, was that yes. Yes, I think we that was 2006, 2006, I think is when that was. That was six, okay. And I think the year before that, was it the Green Man? Yes. I think, uh, no, wait, maybe six was, no, six wasn't, the Green Man was, was uh, I don't remember when the Green Man was, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I can't remember, I think it was the year before, because we went two years in a row, and then we skipped a year or two, and then we went back again. And the, well, one, the last... 2006 is, 2006 year, we had the big tent with the Shulgans there, and, and uh, had yeah, I was, some speakers. I, I saw the Shulgans, I went Pardon to meet, me? I saw the Shulgans there. I went to meet um, Sasha, and gave I gave him a copy of my rave culture book, and I met well, Rick, you know, Rick in there. We're like ships that pass in the night because I organized that lecture and I was the MC that introduced him. So oh, there you go. <laughs> we we were within a few feet of one another. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was good. I enjoyed that. No, I I, I uh, that was my uh, main event there. I wanted to see uh, I wanted to see Alexander Shulgin and. Anna and meet Rick Dublin. So I did that, and I gave them all a book. <laughs> and we had 32 speakers that year for Blanque Norte, and the Shogun's were by far the, the largest one, uh, the, the yeah, yeah. best attended. It was really amazing. It was quite a day, actually. Yes, yeah, it was quite an event, really. Do you think they'll have another one? Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, we were talking about that the other day. Uh, I, I was kind of pessimistic, but I thought there was some optimism here for it. Uh, I've heard some, I've heard some talk that there was there was some talk of moving to regionals. Anyway, that was the general plan to move to regional events. We have a very good one here in BC, but um, yeah, well, I wondered if they survive. Uh, you know, two years of uh, two years of cancellations. That's a this big hit. 
Yeah, San Diego has a, a, a big regional event, too, that's really well attended and, and quite good. Yeah. But, uh, you know, nobody goes all out for the regionals because they've already burned out, you know, the, the main event in the playa. So maybe the regionals will become a lot more interesting if that's uh, the way it goes. I think that's what would happen if it did go down. But uh, they've got a lot of resistance now from the park, the park board and stuff, the, park, the land management. They've got a lot more restrictions and uh, police presence and, uh, you know, all that stuff. So it might, they might just make it too difficult for them to do it. They might uh, go to regionals instead. They'll do something smaller at the land that they bought because they bought some uh, land right next to the main site, I think. Right. And, in fact, I, I remember now, was, uh, I think it was just last Thursday morning we were talking because uh, – uh, one of one of the people there, two of the people there have been over to over 15 burns. Uh, one of them started in 90, 1995, yeah. and the other one, the last burn was in 2019. So they covered the whole range of it, and, and yeah. we did a lot of talking about how it has changed and gotten big and all like that. So uh, personally, I, I I don't know how it's going to be, but uh, first time I went, it was only like 20,000 people, and uh, that was really a lot more fun. Yeah, uh, from the standpoint of you could see almost every everything that was being talked about, you could get around to see. Right, right. now, that's really not possible. So, uh, yeah, I I think you know Burning Man is an evolution in in uh, society and culture, and so it's it's going to be interesting. It's a state of mind, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it will it will carry on as a state of mind for sure. It'll carry on in other events like it does here with the regionals and with other events too. There's, there's people now that do Burning Man style events. They're not, you know, they're not sanctioned by Burning Man or anything. They're not regionals, but they're certainly inspired by. So that doesn't change. The ideas, the ideas and the ethos will continue and, and take other forms, I think, in the future. How, how do you see the, the uh, let's just say the cannabis community in, in uh, uh, the Vancouver area evolving now that they've uh, essentially legalized uh, sort of like we have here in California. How, how is the culture evolving, uh, not necessarily the business? It was a bit lumpy there for a while because they had all these different systems going. They had like three different systems going at one point. And then everything was supposed to be replaced by the cannabis, the National Cannabis Act. So they were going to be, you know, uh, legalized on a national level for recreational and medical use. So at that point, that was supposed to supersede everything else. But then people complained about that. So they kind of grandfathered in a lot of these other other programs that, that predated legalization. So now we've got kind of a bit of a confusing mess. And there isn't really a clear clear licenses for everybody. There's boutique growers now. I know some growers that are, you know, they're still growing and they're still, they know that they're growing, they're tolerated, but they're not technically legal because they don't have a production license. And production licenses are very difficult to get. You know, they cost a lot of money and uh, you have to, um, you have to pay all this money in advance. They're heavily taxed. It's a very, very tightly controlled system. And a lot of people are just walking away from it and saying, no, it's, it's too restrictive. And it damages the product. Like a lot of people that are buying from the legal stores now, they're not, they don't like the pot. It's all dry. It's old. It's been sitting around for too long. Uh, they don't get to see it or touch it or smell it. They've got it in plastic boxes with a sniffing tube. <laughs> so you have to sniff it through. 
I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not the same thing as having a look and, you know, tasting it, maybe taste, having a taste or whatever. So there's still a very big thriving underground here so far. And it's the, the pot on the underground is cheaper and it's better. So I imagine, I imagine eventually it will move to a completely legal system. Uh, I mean, it has to really, I mean, it's, and it is legal, so... But there's these bugs to work out. You know, they need to up their quality and move it through the system faster or something because there's a lot of complaints about quality. You know, there's a very similar thing here in California, and we, f- we found that we, we look at, at packaging, and you see the, the film canister packaging is still your best bud because it's your local grower, you know. It, it doesn't have all the taxes, and it's got... Uh, good organic bud, you know that. So yeah. uh, we've had this the same thing going on down here. Is that uh, the same evolution? I think I, I don't think it's going to go away for a while. It seems like everybody that's uh, legalizing so-called uh, are really just adding all kinds of bureaucratic regulations uh, to it. Yeah, and people aren't used to that. You see, we've had perfectly good, you know, we've had perfectly good pot system in this area for the last forty years with no problems, right? good quality, good selection, good prices. The sellers are happy. The buyers are happy. The whole system worked very, very well. And now there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, some of it's not working very well. So it hasn't been an improvement so far. And until it is, I think there'll still be a healthy underground. You know, once a month I joined this uh, live podcast with my friend, uh, the Dope Fiend over in London and uh, he, he does his podcast. We have people from, from France, England, Canada, uh, Australia, uh, and U.S. on the line. And a couple of months ago, they did a survey, or he did a survey, and we all chipped in and, and Ted said, what kind of bud was our favorite bud? And by a long shot, it was BC Bud. <laughs> your, your reputation in Vancouver area, BC area is just oh, it's true. That's right. The standards are very high. <laughs> People are very, very fussy. Like if it's not, you know, quadruple A pot, they don't want to know. It's B grade. It's like, <laughs> forget it. So we have very high standards. We're very fussy. <laughs> I think BC Bud won the Cannabis Cup, like, I don't know how many years in a row, but it's always way up there. It's always, it's yeah. always wins all the prizes. I don't know why that... The quality is very high, no pun intended, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, somebody else here, you want to chime in? Uh... I'll jump in uh, to build on Pat's question. Um, apart from just being a really popular guy by giving away and, and gifting medicine, um, what is the, the, the spiritual or personal benefit that you accrue from having that ethic? Um, what have you learned? What do you, how does this help your development? I don't know. I enjoy being generous and I, you know, I've always sort of enjoyed that. I just get a, I just get a kick out of it because it makes people happy and I like people to be happy. <laughs> so if I can do something and they're happy, then that makes me happy. <laughs> and it goes around and around. So it's sort of, there's a sort of a selfish motivation there in a way. I mean, I've, you know, I, I, I uh, take a lot of people on vacation. <laughs> so if I'm going somewhere and, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, I have lots of friends that don't have as much money as I do. So I'm, you know, it's more fun for me if I can take them as well. So I pay the shot and we all go and we have a fantastic time. <laughs> but it's more fun if you can take your friends with you when you go places. 
we do vacation rentals in this area and uh there's places where you can you know rent for like 12 or 16 people or get together crews you know hand-picked crews and we'll go and we'll have a party one night and an lsd hike the next day and do these big crazy dinner parties and it's fantastic and um so i just pay for the whole thing and and invite people along and uh i can do it so i feel good about that and everybody is very happy about it <laughs> you know I, I was just thinking if you were a, a wall street robber baron uh and and people you were taking people on vacation they would probably resent you but the fact that you made your product your money in an honest profession making people happy you know you can share the wealth i think that's a wonderful way to do it a great karma yeah, yeah. No, I, I you know, it's, it works for me anyway. I, uh, I, like, I, I like to be, you know, it's fun for me to be generous. I enjoy it. So I get, I get as much out of it as, as people that benefit from it. You know, you, you sort of mentioned in passing that there, there's, uh, you're, there's a lot of philosophy in your book. And, and uh, I have dozens of pages with yellow uh, underline where I did. You, you, you have a lot of things that, uh, of course, I underline the things I agree with, you know. <laughs> but right. but there's, there's also a lot of other references, things I've forgotten about, like, like uh, uh, what's that name, uh, that movie, Fitz? Fitz uh, Caraldo. Fitzcarraldo, you mentioned that movie. I hadn't, I'd, I'd seen it years ago, and so this weekend I watched it again. It's just a terrific movie. I'd forgotten all about it. I, I, and then I watched a bunch of videos about the making of it and all. So you yeah, know, yeah. just spun off of your book. And another uh, no, thing, another thing that that you got me uh, spinning in an old direction where I was having a lot of fun is, uh, as people should know, and I'll put a, a, a link to it. You, you've got a couple dozen uh, music videos up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I, I started watching them, and the the ones you have with your band is a, a cool, funky little band because it's got uh, you on the guitar, the drums, a horn. I think it's a cornet or a trumpet, and an accordion. Uh, and and the accordion, it's it's an unusual combination, so cool. And what that reminded me of is a band I used to love in the '90s called Morphine. And it was a, a three-piece group out of Boston, and they're just fantastic with another really unusual sound. So, uh, yeah. uh, I, 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 I uh, you still you still get together with your band uh, regularly? Well, I don't have a regular band. I just put together those groups specifically for the uh, for the videos. Uh, so, um, for those of you that don't know, there's a my YouTube channel is just under my name, Jimmy Fritz, and uh, I made 26 music videos. Uh, the last couple of years and I wanted to kind of document my original songs so I take a song and uh, some of them are ballads so some of them are solos some of them are duos some of them are trios and then you know I'd find musicians for each song we find a location and we shoot maybe two 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 videos in each location and then uh, just put together the bands ad hoc the accordion player was just a friend of the drummers and he was coming to the rehearsal. So we do one rehearsal, play the song and get the idea. And then we go and do the shoot and we do it three times. And then we pick the best take. So this Argentinian uh, uh, accordion player showed up and he just like clicked in and did his thing and got, got groovy. It was fantastic. So uh, yeah, it was just a chance meeting really. So all those bands were just temporary, just for the video. I didn't perform with any of those bands. Now, who uh, is James Fry? 
Oh, he's a publisher. <laughs> okay. He's a publisher of my books. Okay, because you give him credit for all the songs. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and I, just, I couldn't find a songwriter named James Fry. <laughs> he might be an alter ego. <laughs> He's another one, of, another one of my many names. You, you know, uh, I, I have a plan for my last podcast, which I hope is many, many years from now. But on my last podcast, I, originally I was going to play Jim Morrison's uh, This is the End at the last. Right. And then I, I started thinking about Woody uh, Guthrie's uh, song, uh, so, so Long's Been Good to Know You. But right. now I'm, I'm going to check with you when I get close to the end. Uh, Time to Say Goodbye is my local yeah, yeah. Uh, latest favorite for that because it's also by somebody that I know now. So, uh, Well, you're, you're more than welcome to use it for whatever you want. Okay. Hey, listen, I got this in the, you know, I'm a lawyer too. So this, I've got a public record now of having okay. this. So you got it. <laughs> you got my permission. I will not abuse it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. No, I'd be happy for you to use it for whatever you want. I like that song. It worked out very well. It's a good song. It is. Yeah. So, so, uh, oh, we have a, a little bit of time left here. Anybody else have some, uh, something they'd like to chime in or ask any questions or comments? Anyone? That's cool. It looks very nice, it says. Ed Z. <laughs> hey, Jim, um, this is Ed over here. Uh, I'm wondering what the deal is with um, mushrooms in, Van in uh, Canada now. I, I think I've seen online people selling, um, it looks like dried, uh, dried cubensis and stuff like that. Well, uh, mushrooms are still technically illegal in Canada. But there was an exception recently for, um, there's a company in uh, Vancouver called Theracil and their therapeutic psilocybin organization. They want to do uh, therapy with psilocybin for end of life patients. Mm -hmm. And that's the first study that they're doing. And they were recently licensed by the Canadian government to do these um, trials uh, with, uh, with psilocybin. So it's the first time that psilocybin has been legal to use in probably 40 or 50 years, I think. So it's a major breakthrough. So they've licensed the people that are taking it, and they've licensed the therapists that are going to give it to the patients. And they're going to do this study and uh, do it with end-of-life patients, anxiety with end-of-life. So that's happening right now. And Vancouver City Council has just voted on a motion to decriminalize the possession of all drugs. Hmm. So that's another new development. Mm -hmm. But as of now, generally, mushrooms are technically illegal still. Okay. So somehow the people doing it on the web are just in a gray area or just... Well, it's, been, it's, it's, very, tolerant. it's very tolerant here. You know, even, uh -huh. before, even before marijuana was legalized, we had pot stores in every corner. And oh. the, police, the police just didn't bother with them. Oh, really? Oh, wow. yeah, it was a, you know, it was considered to be a gray area. I don't know what the gray area was. They were technically illegal, but mm -hmm. they just tolerated it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the police chief in Vancouver said about, it must have been three or four years ago, he said, you know, we're not, we're not concerned with small amounts of, of drugs anymore. It's a waste of our time. It's a waste of money. 
And we're not mm -hmm. going to enforce these laws anymore. And they stopped enforcing marijuana laws and small amounts of, of drugs, you know, quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. But they're just in the process now of making it formal and making it, making it legal. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're just going to look at it as a medical issue rather than a criminal one. Yeah, yeah. Especially all these people they're picking up off the street for, you know, meth heads and crack addicts and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's pointless to be criminalizing these people and putting them in jail. Yeah. It doesn't do any, anybody any good. So yeah. if they can decriminalize it, then they just go straight into the medical system, mm -hmm. which is where they belong, right? Yeah. Seems like we're moving that way here in Portland, but it's our yeah. healthcare system so messed up, it's hard to see how it'll really connect in a meaningful way with anything like that. Everything's going that way. You can see the dominoes falling one by one, and it's easy to see where it's going to end up, you know, eventually. But we are, things happen so slowly. It's very, it's a very slow process to change laws and to mm -hmm. change, you know, the establishment's mind. And it's, um, it's always been a very slow process. But we've seen some incredible progress around the world. Mm -hmm. Around the world are places where they're legalizing it. You, you know, Uruguay's there's legal, legal recreational marijuana now. Mm -hmm. It's legalized all drugs. Uh, there's lots of cities and local, local municipalities which are now like Vancouver, you know. That's what happened with marijuana. It was the municipalities and the small, like, it was called, uh, what was it, Sensible, Sensible Colorado. It was an early movement, and they said, no, we're gonna, just going to legalize it in our town because we don't want to enforce these laws. And that spread to, you know, provincial and state levels and then eventually to national levels. So okay. it starts, starts small and grows. Mm -hmm. But no, I think we've seen some good progress, especially in the last with psychedelic research, especially. Mm -hmm. like, there's been an avalanche of, of psychedelic psychotherapy going on all around the world right now. There yeah. are dozens and dozens of studies in MDA and uh, Ibogaine, DMT, mushroom psilocybin. It's, uh, it's really booming right now. It's a huge... Uh, and I was hoping that my book may might ride, you know, ride that wave a little bit. Because there's a lot of interest in these things right now. And I think there's a lot of pretty good, solid, sane information about psychedelics in my book. So mm -hmm. hopefully somebody will get some benefit from that. Mm -hmm. there, there's a great deal of good information about psychedelics in that book, about set, setting and, and uh, you know, how, how to balance your life, things like that, yeah. how to deal with children. Record that. Confessions of a drug dealer, folks. <laughs> In, in uh, nice. 2D. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about the, the way it's going, they're going about legalization at the, the community level, uh, because I think really the culture has already changed much. You know, the laws are way behind the culture. Yeah. And uh, a few, few weeks ago here in the live salon, we had a couple of the uh, people who are leading the charge in Massachusetts, and they've been going, doing the same thing, going around to small, uh, to city councils, uh, you know, smaller bodies, and they've had success in several cities that are fairly large cities in Massachusetts uh, that have, have decided to decriminalize their drugs, not to put it in the lowest category. And yep. the, their strategy is the same. They go around all these local communities and eventually build up to get to the state level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a model that's been used over and over now, and, and it seems to be used more often and in more places and more frequently. So we're seeing a really a real acceleration right now in the acceptance of psychedelics in particular. 
and the benefits, you know, because, because they've been illegal for so long, we haven't been able to study them. We haven't been able to figure out what they're really good for. You know, I mean, the people that have been using them all their lives know what they're good for, but not the general public doesn't. And the society in general have not, you know, learned how to use them. So hopefully with more legalization, there'll be more studies. Something's happening in Canada right now with marijuana because it's legal. Anybody can do a study now on Canada. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can use it and you can study it and you can find out what it does and what it doesn't do and what it's good for and what it's not good for. So we'll finally find out. Well, one other thing I'd like to give you a chance to, to uh, say a little bit about is you're a vegetarian, right? Yeah. And you said your, your two sons are in their forties and they never eat, have never eaten meat. Never. No, still. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite pleased about that because I thought they probably, I didn't know whether they would, you know, stick with it or not. But they were brought up as vegetarians. And so they never, you know, really knew about meat until they were old enough to think about it. And then by then, I guess they were, they were lifelong vegetarians, but neither one of them, neither one of them has eaten meat. So, yeah, and they're 36 and 38. Well, you know, I, I, you know, like most Americans from the Midwest, I grew up, you know, meat and potatoes was our diet, and so it's yeah. been really difficult. I've, I, I've spent, uh, you know, one year eating raw food only, so I had no meat then, and I've, I've spent a couple of years vegetarian. But the older I got, the more I was really kind of craving it, going back and eating protein. So lately, though, I've taken up cooking as a hobby, and yeah. I'm finding all kinds of recipes to make things taste like meat, you know, like eggplant. I'm making some good eggplant bacon these days. And so uh, it's that flavor that I'm still craving because I grew up with it. But your son's never having had that flavor have have an advantage, I think. No, they've never missed it because they've never had it. There's a lot of really good meat substitutes out there now. There's a lot of really awful ones too. But there's some very, very good ones. And, uh, you know, I've poured through those and found found some really good sausages and some really good. Uh, there's a thing called pepper steak. It's really chewy and nice and you can do what you want with it, you know, chop it up, put it in anything. There's some good substitute chickens and there's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of food. There's an avalanche of that happening right now too. And then soon we'll have the, uh, you know, the, the uh, biological meats, the lab grown, lab grown meats where they're growing it with cells and you'll have a steak, which is a real steak, but it never came from an animal. So that will satisfy the hardcore meat eaters. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I would prefer one of my, my vegetables made to taste like meat to a vat-grown piece of meat. <laughs> I don't know why, but I would. Go well, ahead, Ed. Ed, you were saying something? Oh, I, I was just wondering, um, Jimmy, why are you a vegetarian? It sounds like a principled, long-time uh, practice. For me, it's a, for me, it's more, I mean, there are a lot of good reasons to be a vegetarian. You know, it's ecological, it's more economical, it's better for the environment. It's, uh, you know, if, if, if there's one thing you can do for the environment, it's become a vegetarian. It's the best thing you can do because there's so many different reasons. But for me, it's mainly a moral issue. I do, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, it's, it's unethical or immoral to uh, torture and slaughter billions of sentient beings for my culinary pressure. <laughs> it seems like it's not a good enough reason. And I ask people, you know, why they eat meat, and they always say the same thing, because it tastes good. But there has to be a better, there has to be a better moral reasoning than mm-hmm. that, oh, it tastes good. Mm-hmm. For me, that's not. And if, uh, you know, 
if you wanted to, if people, if people saw more about the processing of meat or uh, slaughterhouses, you know, mm-hmm. they are really horrific places. Mm-hmm. Anybody that's ever had a relationship with a cat or a dog or a pet, you know that these animals have feelings. You know that they have an emotional life. They're not robots. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're beings. They're not as conscious as we are. They're not as smart as we are, but they are, they are beings and they feel pain and they get pissed off and they get angry and they get, you know, there's a lot of similarities. So once you recognize that, to me, there's no difference between a cat and a dog and a sheep and a pig and a cow. They're almost identical animals. They're just slightly different sizes. <laughs> so, you know, if you're okay with, with animals, then you've got to be okay with factory farming dogs. Mm-hmm. factory farming labradors or you know cats mm-hmm. but people love their cats meat eaters love their cats <laughs> i never could never figure it out <laughs> yeah. explanation for that i don't well you don't hey, often Charles. hear I, I don't often hear people um uh, address the vegetarianism from the moral side and the, or the yeah. ethical side rather than the you know, more sort of benign environmental or health issues. Yeah, and there are a lot of good. I used to I used to distribute a pamphlet. It's called 101 Reasons to Be a Vegetarian." Mm-hmm. It's been around for a long time, and I you know buy a big stack of them and I leave them in people's bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> there's 101, and any one of these reasons would be a good enough reason. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that there's so many mm-hmm. is uh, is food for thought. Mm-hmm. Charles? Like, like, like Ed, I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and um, now that there's a path to being a legal therapist, every 10th person that has a good mushroom experience decides they're going to become a shaman. But you actually have curated um, mass medicine experiences for people, which gives you more right to the claim than most of, of you know, holding shamanic or psychedelic space. So what is a uh, two-part question? what are some of the pitfalls people should have in mind? And two, what is the most memorable experience that you've created for people uh, in your experience of, of curating medicine realms? Well, I think um, well, the most memorable experience were the spec projects. And that was, you know, watching 200 people really connect, like a click in, like a web. You know, you get to a point where you build and build and build and the energy and then people would take that. And they try to get people to take their E at the same time or around the same time so that the whole wave would come up at the same at the same rate. And then you see people start to click in. They start to intensify. And then the atmosphere and the atmosphere gets, you know, heavier and heavier. And then there's a point where everybody clicks in and they're all in the same place. This is group mind connection. And when you see that and then you look around and, you, and people catch each other's eyes and they know exactly where you're at and you know exactly where they're at, that's a, you know, it's a very powerful experience. Most people, uh, most people have lost, I mean, most, most people have lost personal connection with, with other people. They don't have this close, meaningful, you know, uh, un- unconditional connection with people there's always some bullshit going on between them so they're always trying to get past that well this just blew the doors off and that was all gone so it was just people raw naked connected and that was that that was the most powerful psychedelic experiences i ever had was that that because it was also 
you know, involving 150 or 200 or 250 people. So that sort of intensified the whole experience. What was the drug? MDMA. This was at, this was at parties, uh, spec parties. The Society for the Perpetuation of Empathiogenic Celebrations. Empathiogenic is something that engenders a feeling of empathy. So that's what MDMA does, you know. It gives you an empathetic feeling, not just towards other people, but also an empathetic connection with yourself. And for a lot of people, they had that, they had that experience for the first time. They'd be, you know, whether they were 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old, you'd see them have that experience for the first time in their lives. And, they, and people used to tell me this all the time. They said, for the first time in my life, I felt absolutely unguarded, absolutely wide open, connected, positive, and felt really good about my connection with everybody in the room and myself. Have you ever seen that with uh, classic psychedelics in a big group setting? Yeah, well, more or less smaller. I mean, if you're doing psilocybin or, um, or acid, for instance, it's more of a smaller group works well. Acid gets a bit weird if there's 200 people tripping. <laughs> 200 people peeking on acid is <laughs> a, <laughs> a bit much. But smaller groups, I mean, I've had incredibly powerful experiences with small groups of, you know, five or ten people in a beautiful setting in a, in a, you know, a forest or a lake or an ocean or whatever, you know, like outdoors in nature. Had some very, very powerful experiences and powerful connections. And again, you're all on the same page. You're all in the same frame of mind. You're all, you know, presumably friends at that point. So, yeah, that can be very powerful as well. But definitely smaller groups with LSD or psilocybin. Mike, something that, that Jimmy makes really clear, and, and I totally agree, and it's not made clear enough by enough people, is the rave movement really wouldn't have happened without MDMA. Mushrooms, no. acid, all those things can be used and sometimes are, but MDMA and raves are synchronistic uh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was just... never a drug I've had the opportunity to, to uh, take, even though I live down here in Texas where it was fairly prolific from what I understand. Yeah, well, the Texas thing was happening in the clubs, right? So yeah, that, yeah. That was a slightly different scene. It wasn't until it married in, in, in the mid-'80s when it married with the uh, – it was at the, like the free party scene in England. And these were parties that were happening just before, before ecstasy hit. And they were, you know, in fields at night, and they were impromptu parties – they were with psychedelic rock bands and stuff, and people would just get together in fields. And it was called the Free Party Movement. Well, that sort of went down to Ibiza, and then that married with house music and ecstasy, and it all came back to England together, and that was the start of the rave music. But it was that synthesis of the, uh, of the music and the E. That's what really brought it together. I'm not sure. It wouldn't have happened in the same way. Previous to that, there were acid house parties where people were doing LSD. So that, was a, that was a fun scene too, but it didn't like catch on like fire because it was something that people really needed and something that people really wanted. They wanted that connection. They wanted to feel that connection to other human beings. I think that's what we all need. We all want to, you know, we all want to love and be loved. That's a fundamental drive as human beings. And what E and, and the abandoned, you know, the, the, the climate of freedom 
that was created at the raves gave people, you know, this incredible connection, this interconnected, uh, interpersonal, you know, journey. And it was really, really powerful for a lot of people, changed a lot of people's lives, including mine. Mike, I look forward to maybe some night uh, dancing all night on E to a rave with you and, and yeah, well, <laughs> I think that would be incredible. I, I, I intend to do it again in my life and uh, I, I've still got time to go so we should be able to hook that up and do it sometime, Mike. Well, we're in touch now. Let me know when you're coming up this area. <laughs> what a great thing to say, Lorenzo. I'm looking forward to expanding my uh, experiences since I've been a bit unexperienced for 30 or 40 years or so but things are moving along well so i'm very i'm very hopeful for these well, last I, tell you, I tell you what on my wish list my big time dream i have one travel dream left is i want to take the the train route that it leaves from vancouver and it goes up through the rockies and up to, to uh, uh banff and back uh you take yep. a bus and all anyhow the it's starting off and return point is vancouver so when I do that, you could meet me in Vancouver. We'll hook up with Jimmy, and we'll we'll make it happen. We'll dance all night on E. You got it. I'll I'll, I'll do a party for you. <laughs> now I think a bunch of us want to come forward. up for that. <laughs> okay, listen. For the end of the pandemic, the end of the pandemic rave in Vancouver. Put it on your calendars, everybody. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? That actually will be the most healing thing at the end of the pandemic is if folks can actually connect on some empathogenic level. That's uh, that's a good yeah, thing to put out into the universe. That's right. We need it more than ever now, right? Because we've all been so disconnected for so long that it's going to be uh, it's going to be nice to get back on the dance floor. <laughs> You know, I, I live in Portland where, you know, before the pandemic, you would have the Proud Boys and Antifa come out to yell at each other about uh, every two or three months. And I always realize that these folks don't need to yell at each other. What they need is some E and Brian Eno until they figure out that they're the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I agree. Well, I, I think we've had a successful conversation because we have a plan now for the end of the pandemic party. And uh, I think that, that as long as we have something to look forward to and smile, uh, that's as good as we can get for now. But Jimmy, I hope to have you back sometime and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk, uh, I'm, I'm gonna get your other book and read it and we'll have you come back and talk about that too. Okay, we'll be in touch. Nice to meet you. Same here, listen everybody, until next time, keep the old faith and stay Okay. Home. Peace and love, peace and love. Thank you, same here. Bye-bye. Bye. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.